Welcome to the November 3rd, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, cell-free hemoglobin S was found to induce high levels of pro-inflammatory cytokine production in monocytes. The effect is mediated by toll-like receptor 4, or TLR4 suggesting intriguing therapeutic possibilities for sickle cell disease. Also in the podcast, germinal center B cells with aberrant expression profiles undergo independent clonal evolution in the microenvironment of angioaminoblastic T-cell lymphoma. New findings published in blood elucidate mechanisms of disease pathogenesis and uncover a new potential target for treatment. Finally, an upfront combination of three immunosuppressive agents was highly effective and well-tolerated in patients with acquired hemophilia A. Although prospective studies are needed, the triple regimen could be an attractive treatment option, particularly for elderly and frail patients. The first research article is entitled, Hemoglobin S promotes TLR4-mediated monocyte activation and pro-inflammatory cytokine production in sickle cell disease. And the first author is Slimane Alali of the Nectar Enfant Maladie Hospital in Paris, France. Let's first go over some background. Sickle cell disease, or SCD, is a severe hemoglobin disorder and the most common monogenic disease worldwide. SCD is characterized by hemolytic anemia, recurrent and painful vaso-occlusive crises, progressive organ damage, and, important for the present study, a systemic inflammatory state. This inflammatory state is characterized by the presence of activated monocytes, which are producing high levels of virtually all pro-inflammatory cytokines. Interestingly, this phenomenon is much higher in SCD than it is in patients with beta-thalassemia or other non-SCD causes of intravascular hemolysis. In the present study, Alili and colleagues explored the potential role of cell-free HBS in creating systemic inflammation. They were able to demonstrate that cell-free HBS induced a substantial increase in the expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines. In cultured human monocytes from healthy blood donors, the addition of purified HBS induced a marked increase in mRNA expression of TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, and IL-6. By contrast, addition of HBA or heme had no effect on levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Next, investigators asked which specific inflammatory signaling pathways might be activated. Evaluation of mRNA expression profiles revealed that HBS, unlike HBA, induced activation of both the NF-kappa-B and type 1 interferon pathways, which in turn caused overexpression of IL-6, along with other cytokines and chemokines. What's behind this activation of pro-inflammatory pathways? Investigators strongly suspected that toll-like receptor 4, or TLR4, could be implicated. In previous reports, monocytes from patients with SCD were shown to exhibit high mRNA expression of TLR4, which was strongly linked to secretion of IL-6. In the present study, Alili and co-authors were able to confirm increased surface expression of TLR4 in SCD patient monocytes as compared to healthy control monocytes. Furthermore, co-incubation with HBS was found to increase TLR4 mRNA expression in monocytes from healthy blood donors. TLR4 is in the TLR4-MD2 complex, which is essential in mediating inflammatory responses to damage-associated molecular patterns. 
In further investigations described in blood, Allelian co-authors show that MD2 is also mandatory for HBS-dependent TLR4 signaling. Moreover, HBS had a strong affinity for the TLR4-MD2 complex, whereas HPA had only slight affinity. These findings may have interesting implications for the treatment of inflammation related to SCD. Investigators added a TLR4 inhibitor known as TAC242 to cultured human monocytes from healthy donors. Then they added HBS, and the inhibitor completely blocked the enhanced expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines. They also looked at TAC242 and SCD mice injected with HBS. As expected, injecting the mice with HBS increased levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines, while HPA injections did not. In mice pretreated with the TLR4 inhibitor, the HBS-induced plasma cytokine increase was completely inhibited. Taken together, these findings demonstrate that HBS released by intravascular hemolysis activates monocytes and leads to increased inflammatory cytokine production in SCD. That's according to David R. Gibb of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California, and Crystalline E. Hudson of Columbia University Medical Center in New York City, who co-authored a commentary on this study. Gibb and Hudson say it's striking that the effects of HBS are profoundly greater than that of HBA, despite a difference of just a single amino acid between these hemoglobins. One caveat to the findings is that the TLF4-MD2 complex on monocytes can also be bound by lipopolysaccharide, or LPS, which strongly induces NF-kappa-B-induced cytokines as well as interferon alpha and beta. The study authors did address this issue in their experiments, as described in the journal. Nevertheless, Gibb and Hudson say it can't be ruled out that cytokine production may have been influenced by undetectable levels of LPS, or possibly other components of hemoglobin preparations. Gibb and Hudson also comment on clinical implications of the findings, stating that using a novel small molecule to inhibit the interaction between HBS and TLR4-MD2 could interrupt the vicious cycle of inflammation during vaso-occlusion. Toward that end, the present study represents significant progress in the identification of pro-inflammatory mechanisms in SCD, providing hope for the development of new interventions that could combat the severe consequences of inflammation in these patients. The next research article is entitled, Clonal Germinal Center B-Cells Function as a Niche for T-Cell Lymphoma and the first author is Manabu Fujisawa of the University of Tsukuba in Japan. This article focuses on angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, or AITL, a neoplasm of mature T-cells. This is the second most common peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and it has a poor five-year overall survival of just 31.6%. AITL is usually CD30 negative, meaning that the antibody drug conjugate brentuximab has reduced activity in this subtype. Other approaches to improving outcomes have focused on epigenetic vulnerabilities, or the mTOR-PI3K pathway, as examples. More research is needed to identify new and potentially targetable biological drivers of this disease. Increasingly, AITL is a representative example of a cancer that derives from age-related clonal hematopoiesis, or ACH. ACH refers to the acquisition of somatic mutations among hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, especially in genes involved in epigenetic regulation, such as DNMT3A, ASXL1, and TET2. 
In AITL, HSPCs acquire loss-of-function TET2 mutations, followed by disease-specific RHOA mutations that then lead to the development of lineage tumors. But what about B-cells? The present study expands the focus beyond T-cells to include B-cells in the tumor microenvironment. We know that AITL tissues are characterized by a significant infiltration of B immunoblasts. In normal lymph nodes, T follicular helper cells, or TFH cells, have the same phenotype as AITL cells and functionally interact with germinal center B cells, or GCB cells. In the present research article, Fujisawa and co-authors describe a series of investigations in mouse models and human tissue samples, which were aimed to determine if other clonally derived immune cells are involved in the pathogenesis of AITL. They found that TET2 mutations in B cells in the tumor microenvironment were necessary for the generation and expansion of the TFH cells that will become AITL. Mice with TET2 mutations in all blood cells spontaneously developed AITL, while mice with TET2 mutations in only T cells did not develop AITL. This suggests that TET2 mutations in cells other than the direct T cell precursors of AITL are required for the development of AITL perhaps to support their expansion or viability. Using a single-cell RNA sequencing analysis, investigators observed marked expansion of abnormal germinal center B cells in both mouse and human AITL samples. In the AITL microenvironment, the GCB cells underwent independent clonal evolution, exhibiting recurrent mutations in core histone genes, among others. Using a network analysis of RNA sequencing data, investigators were able to discern a potential novel therapeutic target in this setting, namely the possibility that CD40 and CD40 ligand were possible mediators of GCB and tumor cell interactions. Increased expression of CD40 was identified in the abnormal B cells before lymphoma development, suggesting that the interaction between CD40 and the CD40 ligand in this setting leads to downstream signaling that enhances the development and expansion of T-cell lymphoma cells. How does this translate into treatment, potentially? In a mouse model of AITL, treatment with an anti-CD40 ligand antibody suppressed tumor growth and prolonged survival. Thus, the authors say they have uncovered a new concept for therapeutically targeting ACH-derived immune cells in AITL. Taken together, these data suggest that GCB cells undergo clonal evolution due to aging-related clonal hematopoiesis and may go on to play a fundamental role in the development of AITL. In a commentary, Jennifer E. Amengual of Columbia University Irving Medical Center said this elegant series of experiments helps to tease out the intricate dance between AITL and its heterogeneous microenvironment. She said the work reveals new mechanisms of disease pathogenesis and introduces potential therapeutic strategies to target that biology. However, much more remains to be studied. For example, the contribution of plasma cells in this niche remains unknown. The role of the specific mutations in core histones is also unclear, and it's possible that Epstein-Barr virus may be driving some of these events. For now, Amon Gual concluded, the findings in this manuscript make it clear that disrupting the CD40-CD40 ligand interaction could be of therapeutic benefit, opening a new window of opportunity in the treatment of AITL. The final research article is entitled, Combined Immunosuppression for Acquired Hemophilia A. 
PsyDRI is a highly effective low-toxicity regimen. The first author is Barbara Simon of Semmelweis University in Budapest, Hungary. Acquired hemophilia A is a rare and severe bleeding disorder caused by autoantibodies to coagulation factor 8. Bleeding can range from mild to severe, with reported mortality rates up to 22%. Patients tend to be older and often frail. In one European registry study, about half of the patients were over 74 years old. Many cases are idiopathic, though some are associated with malignancies, autoimmune disorders, pregnancy, certain drugs, and other conditions. Treatment of acquired hemophilia A comes down to acute control of bleeding and immunosuppressive therapy. Guidelines recommend patients start immunosuppressive treatment as soon as possible after diagnosis. However, they also mention the significant toxicity of current regimens, underscoring the need for safer options. Current protocols call for use of prednisolone, with or without cyclophosphamide, for up to six weeks, followed by second-line agents such as cyclosporine or rituximab. Off-label emicizumab is also an option, and a clinical trial in acquired hemophilia A is set to be completed in 2023. However, this is a high-cost approach with a long-term safety profile that is not yet clear. The present study focuses on an immunosuppressive regimen that incorporates pulse doses of cyclophosphamide, dexamethasone, and low-dose rituximab, called PsyDRI for short. The authors say combining several agents up front may improve efficacy while reducing corticosteroid exposure and, consequently, toxicity. The retrospective analysis includes 32 consecutive patients with acquired hemophilia A treated with this regimen at two institutions in Budapest. All patients received at least one cycle of 1,000 mg of cyclophosphamide on day 1 and 22, dexamethasone 40 mg on day 1, 8, 15, and 22, and rituximab 100 mg on day 1, 8, 15, and 22, with repeat cycles if needed, for slow response or for relapse, given no sooner than day 43 of the previous cycle. Complete response required meeting four criteria, cessation of bleeding, undetectable F8 inhibitor in the Bethesda assay, restoration of factor VIII activity, and stopping of immunosuppressive therapy. The 32 patients in the cohort ranged in age from 53 to 87 years. The median factor VIII activity at diagnosis was one international unit per deciliter, and the median initial inhibitor titer was 17 Bethesda units. 14 of 32 patients, or about 44%, had Bethesda titers greater than 20 BU. 13 patients had an underlying disease, or about 41%, while in the remainder, the acquired hemophilia A was considered idiopathic. The three patients who died included an elderly, very frail patient who had died of hypostatic pneumonia 27 days after the diagnosis of acquired hemophilia A. In this patient, a contribution of immunosuppressive therapy could not be ruled out. A second patient died of a septic episode related to underlying conditions, and a third died of an independent cardiovascular comorbidity. 12 of 32 patients, or about 38%, presented with active bleeding, and three more had bleeding episodes after admission. Altogether, 29 of 32 patients were free of bleeding after two months of treatment with the triple immunosuppressive regimen. The median time to achieve bleeding control was 15.5 days. Median time to reach complete remission was 77 days, though in one patient with a very high Bethesda titer at baseline, time to complete remission was 939 days. 
About a third of patients needed more than one cycle of PsyDRI treatment to achieve CR. After a median follow-up time of nearly 780 days, 29 of the 32 original patients were alive and in durable complete response. In a commentary on this study, Paul Knobel of the Medical University in Vienna in Austria said that choosing the best immunosuppression for acquired hemophilia A is a, quote, narrow path between shortening time to remission and avoiding deleterious side effects, unquote. Knobel said the research article by Simon and co-authors now provides some safer steps along the way. The triple strategy of dexamethasone, rituximab, and cyclophosphamide appears to be at least as effective and better tolerated than standard immunosuppression regimens. The 90.6% overall survival rate is remarkable, he said, and much better than what has been reported for other regimens. The cumulative dose of cyclophosphamide and steroids is lower, with long intervals between applications, allowing the patient's time to recover. However, median time to remission is still long, at 77 days, during which the rebleeding risk remains high, and the rate of toxicity and infections was still 15.6%. And although the protocol appears feasible, further studies of modifications may be warranted, such as reducing the steroid dose or changing the rituximab dose or omitting it entirely. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.